and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Leslie Garfield Tenzer, Professor of Law at Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University. We will discuss her article, Social Media, Venue, and the Right to a Fair Trial. So welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Thank you for having me. So um, your article is really uh, fun. It was a fun read and really, really timely, I think, because, you know, you're talking about social media and how courts should think about it in the context of of criminal trials. But I was wondering if you could start by just taking a step back from the actual subject matter of of your article and asking just what is venue in in a criminal context? Um, what, what does that mean? So venue basically means the locale of where the trial is held. So in criminal cases, generally, a trial is held where the crime occurred. So if I shoot you in New York City, the trial will be held in New York City. If I shoot you in a post office, the trial will be held in federal court. And the idea is that, and this goes way back to kind of the framing of the Constitution, that when you commit a trial, you're entitled to a jury of your peers, your peers being the people who live in your community. It gets tricky when that jury is threatened um, in, with impartiality. So, and one of the cases I cite, and one of the earliest cases actually, is the Aaron Burr Alexander Hamilton issue, where Aaron Burr famously um, killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And what happened was the judge was very concerned that jurors who kind of loved Alexander Hamilton, probably not as much as they loved Lynn. And well, Miranda, but <laughs> loved him well enough. Um, would co- would would basically were prejudiced going into their um, jury deliberations. It turns out there were no jury deliberations, so it wasn't quite the issue. But the idea was that if the constitution, it's, it's a tension. So the constitution guarantees you an impartial jury. But the Constitution also says that your trial should be held. Um, actually, I, you don't have to be honest. I'm not sure if the Constitution says it has to be held in your um, area, but that is where it's held. And so there's this tension between partiality and a jury in your community being judged by your peers. And that's the issue with venue. Okay, so m- maybe you could talk a little bit about how venue is relevant to the Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial specifically, and also how that intersects with the 14th Amendment. Because I thought it was really interesting that you you mentioned that it was sort of the Ham- the, the Aaron Burr trial that was sort of the first like kind of high profile circumstance in which a court was concerned about the impartiality of the jury. But of course, that was long before the 14th Amendment. Has the 14th Amendment changed how courts think about this question? You know, they really haven't because it's it's still the same idea because the 14th Amendment basically says that states have to recognize the rights of each, uh, I mean, the rights of the uh, federal constitution, that those rights are guaranteed among the states. And so this notion of um, the Sixth Amendment says you are guaranteed a fair trial by an unbiased jury of your peers. Um, and so that through the 14th Amendment, that right kind of trickles down, for lack of a better word, to each state. Because as you know, states can give you more rights, but they can't ever take away rights. So it's it's kind of continuing that floor, if you will, 
to the states. And in my um, the article, because it's criminal and because criminal cases are decided at the situs of the crime, all the cases that I talk about, most of which have been um, very famous, and as it's interesting as one has lived through the history of these cases, they become more and more f- recognizable. That they all started in state courts for the most part. I don't accept um, one. There was one federal crime, but generally speaking, they all started in state courts, and it was that the state, the defendant in the state court argued that his, it's all him, his federal constitutional rights were infringed on by the state courts, by the state courts denying a right to a fair trial. So this is really not an area of law that I've spent a lot of time studying. And based on your paper, it looked like federal courts have become or became increasingly concerned about this issue in the late 19th through early 20th century with sort of like the expansion of of media into different formats and also the increasing availability of various forms of news media. Is that like a fair assessment of sort of the development of the doctrine in this area over time? Well, I'm actually going to challenge that slightly because I do agree that there was some hullabaloo, for lack of a better word, in the at, around the turn of, the, of that century. But really, if you look at it, the major cases that kind of set the stage occurred between 1961 and 1966. In mm. that five-year period, there were four cases that concerned the right to, um, to a fair trial and whether pretrial publicity can change a site of uh, the site of a venue. And I guess, let me just take a step back there and say that what happens is if a defendant who has the burden can show that there's been enough pretrial publicity surrounding the case that it affects the ability of jurors to be impartial, then the defendant can say, we can't have this case decided in our community because these community members have been so tainted by the prejudicial understanding and communications about this through independent actors. So going even back to Alexander Hamilton, the idea was that both the newspapers and just local gossip was so prevalent about what happened that there was concern that jurors going into this were going to hear, oh my God, Aaron Burr was supposed to be a duel and people don't really take duels seriously and then he killed him. And they were going to go into this saying, Aaron Burr's a bad guy, we can't possibly find him not guilty. So that kind of was it. And then there was a 1900s case, but it was really with Irvin Dirt versus Dowd and um, the cases subsequent to that, that this became a real issue. And the reason it became a real issue is because that's when television became a big deal. And so I think it's really the advent of television and broadcast communication that prompted the courts to face this more um, head on. I see. Yeah. And I got the impression from your article that there was a kind of technological sort of tracking of a lot of these concerns that, you know, when new communications media of whatever kind became available in different ways and people could communicate in in different ways, um, in this sort of like through a third party medium, it seemed to make a difference or seemed to affect how courts thought about the fairness under, under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and then y- you mentioned gossip as well. Historically, how important a role did 
gossip, like mm-hmm. spoken commentary, interact with um, sort of more technological uh, right. and in sort of mass media or kind of like published media uh, discussions in terms of how courts analyzed whether or not a change of venue was was constitutionally necessary? Well, that's a great question. You know, the idea here is, has the taint, the pretrial publicity taint, been so pervasive that either there is what we call actual prejudice, meaning that no juror can actually make a fair assessment, or looking at it presumed prejudice, which means that we may not get jurors in front of us to voir dire them and ask them, can they be impartial? But it's just from looking at this, there's no way we could we could kind of impanel an impartial jury. So while gossip in the kind of verbal sense may play a bit of a role, I don't think that gossip would ever be that prevalent that it could, it could um, persuade that many potential jurors. In other words, if you have a thousand potential jurors, I mean, there's been decisions where 70% have not been able to make an impartial decision. And the court said, well, we, we still have 300 people out of those thousand that, that can and, and go put together 12 people from those 300. So it has to be pretty darn prevalent in order to, um, find that there's a change of venue. And I just want to say one other thing about that, that when you talk about gossip, that papers, newspapers can be responsible for the gossip. So there's a very famous case called the Brinks case, which happened in New York, and there's actually been movies. And if you ever saw the movie Goodfellas, the Brinks case kind of makes a little um, cameo in it. But this was a very famous case. And Newsday, which was a newspaper on Long Island, would lead its headlines with these kind of prejudicial headlines that sold newspapers. And they did it because they wanted to sell papers. So in that case, the court basically said, you know, you're using this case as a way to sell papers. We are now going to tell you that that's too prejudicial for these particular defendants. So historically, as courts applied this area of law in practice, was it the kind of constitutional area where they came up with like doctrinal tests with different factors they looked at? Or was it kind of a more holistic approach to ask kind of under the circumstances, does the prejudice seem too substantial to allow a trial to go forward in this particular geographical area? Well, I think if you look at the Supreme Court cases, so these are the cases, the Supreme Court cases are the cases that are ultimately deciding whether the defendant has a right to demand um, uh, has a right to not just demand, but but whether a court must grant, I should say, the change of venue, which requires basically the entire um, the entire case to be moved to a different area. If you look at these cases, they can kind of be divided in in half. And the first half are these 1960s cases, you know, these these four cases that were decided um, rapidly. Those cases really dealt with the advent of broadcast medium. And I think that those cases served mostly as a warning to the media that you're going too far. And um, I can tell you what happened briefly in each of those cases. But then we had a lull after 1966 until 1975. And in the cases that followed between 1975 to the most recent case, case, which is the 2010 case of Jeffrey Skilling and the Enron case, 
those cases developed a test called totality of circumstances test. And so under the totality of circumstances test, the court's going to look at different prongs in deciding um, whether or not to grant a change of venue. If I could take a step back, I just want to talk for just a second about these four cases um, in the 1960s. And what happened in those cases, um, they were Irving versus Dowd and Rideau versus Louisiana, Estes versus Texas, and Shepard versus Maxwell. The, tele- the broadcast television played such a role that the court couldn't ignore it. So Shepard versus Maxwell, which actually became a movie too, was called The Trial of the Century, at least until O.J. Simpson. In that case in particular, the courtroom reconfigured itself for the media, for the broadcast television to have their cables run through it in a way that favored television. And not only that, but the pretrial hearings were held in a gymnasium because the courtroom couldn't handle the um, cables and wires that was necessary to broadcast this thing. So those cases, all of which were decided in favor of the defendant, were really kind of a slap on the wrist of broadcast medium. Mm. I mean, I got the impression that to some degree, it almost seemed like the court was reacting in those cases to the misbehavior of the court itself and allowing many of those things to happen as well. Do you think that that's fair at all? Absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent. And I think that's what gives rise to the current totality of circumstances test, because one of the prongs of the totality of circumstances test that the court looks at, right, is the role of the media in creating the prejudice and kind of the time between the publicity and the quality and quantity of the publicity and what is going on at trial. So in other words, if the media is misbehaving well past the indictment and at the time of the trial, the court is going to side um, with the defendant. I mean, that's just one of the prongs, but I think that's one of the important prongs. The other prongs of the totality of circumstance test are looking at the size and character of the community that it would be, um, they would be pulling the um, jurors from, seeing whether the newspaper, and this is another one that, that kind of punishes the press, seeing whether the newspaper published confessions or other pretrial, pretrial um, papers or kind of gave away information that would otherwise come out at trial. And um, another is just looking at the procedural history of where this case is in, um, you know, so some of these cases went back for a second trial and the court is, the question is whether, you know, there was so much publicity surrounding the first trial and is it is it rearing its ugly head again with the second trial? Right. And so I, I, reading your paper, I kind of got the impression that, uh, after this period in the 60s and early 70s that you discuss, you know, in relation to broadcast media, it seems like there was sort of an ebb in the ability of defendants to get courts to to order a change of venue. I don't know if, if that's accurate or not, but but if it is, does that does it strike you as like a function primarily of sort of better behavior of the media and the courts or a change in the makeup 
of the Supreme Court, sort of making the court itself less sympathetic to these claims or some combination of the two or something else? You know, I think it's something else. And I think it's the thing that made me want to write this article. I think it was an acceptance of the media and the medium of broadcast media. I think that, you know, I think that courts basically have accepted the fact that trials, particularly kind of sensational trials, are newsworthy. And I think that that's kind of became the norm. And as a consequence, that these decisions let rest. I don't think, in other words, I guess, I don't think there was much more for the court to say after 1966, because nothing changed after Mm -hmm. 1966 with regard to televised confessions and that sort of thing. I do think that following Shepard versus Maxwell, that televisions were more well-behaved. And I think that cameras in the courtroom were tamed as a consequence of those decisions. Right. But of course, something has changed more recently with the introduction and really explosive new influence of social media. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of some of the impacts of social media that defendants have pointed to and um, how courts have addressed some of those claims. Yeah. So here's the thing. And I just thought this was so interesting. I, I actually, one of, one of the things I do is I update um, Matthew Bender. And I was updating the chapter on venue and noticed that there were all these cases where defendants were producing evidence of social media. So in order for a change of venue, the burden is on the defendant to prove that they could not call a um, impartial jury. And the reason, and the ways that they prove that is either by impaneling jurors and asking them, you know, can you give an impartial decision? And they all say, no, no, I can't. I've been influenced by the media or, you know, again, like having this kind of circus mentality. So, a couple cases occurred in the past three years where defendants were saying, look, you know, the victim's family published this Facebook in memoriam page and um, everybody is, you know, liking that Facebook in memoriam page and they're posting all these things. And I've been charged with killing this guy. And, you know, in these in memoriam pages, they're vilifying me and this is horrible. Um, or when, um, Zornev was arrested, he was the Bronx, the, um, not the Bronx, the, um, Brooklyn bomber. The Bronx bomber's a Yankee. I mean, not the Brooklyn bomber. He was the Boston bomber. Um, All those bees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry. <laughs> it's not funny. I should not make, but anyway, he was the, he was the Boston, you know, he's involved the Boston bomb. They, there was a lot of Twitter, you know, vilifying him and, 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 and basically, you know, in the media, he was, he was condemned. You know, there was the, the, the newspapers, and the television showed them arresting him and, and he had been hurt. And it was kind of from the media, it looked like he had done it. And, you know, everyone was liking these articles and retweeting these articles. And all of this evidence that was reported, courts just didn't deal with. It's not that they waited. It's not that they said it's not important. It's that they basically said it's irrelevant. And Zorna, they said, look, you can post and you can like, but what does that mean? And then um, in the in memoriam, one of the in memoriam Facebook pages, one of the courts accused the defendant of perhaps creating 
the negative pretrial publicity himself just to, you know, get the venue out because they get the change of venue. They couldn't prove whether um, this was coming from other people. So courts were saying, we can't deal with this. We're just not going to deal with it. Um, now, in fairness, in many of those decisions, there were also newspaper articles, but the newspaper articles, for the most part, were pretty straightforward, not necessarily biased. And the bias part came from the reporting of the um, the social media. I spoke with a reporter who basically said that all of the social media that tainted them and then um, was really a result of these in memoriam pages. And then the newspaper articles that he wrote were about this sensationalism of social media and its impact on the courts, but yet the courts are just ignoring it. So I wanted to talk about what to do. Why are courts ignoring it and what do we do? And so, um, I mean, that's a long-winded answer to your question of, are they ignoring it? So the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was, you know, so one of the things you did in the paper was sort of taxonomize some of these different change of venue claims that defendants have made in relation to social media and sort of identify three different reasons that courts have given for not taking into account, like the novelty of the medium, the legitimacy of the medium. And the fact that so often it's really like opinion laden rather than sort of factual reportage. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could kind of break those down a little bit the way you do in the paper and, and talk about sort of why courts have said that or what courts have said about those things and, and why you don't find those compelling reasons not to take social media into account. Absolutely. All right. So keep in mind the issue is whether this evidence is prejudicial enough to cause a trial court to change the venue. So the first reason that I cite from putting together the cases that have ignored social media is that social media is new. And because it's new, we should ignore it. And I respond to that by saying that social media is almost 25 years old, which makes it a lot older than television was at the time the court's recognize television as an ability, um, as a medium that can impact uh, decision-making and thought-making among jurors. The second um, issue I have is that social media lacks the degree of credibility that um, traditional news media has. And here I talk about this notion of the fourth estate and the, the reverence we have for the traditional print media and even the broadcast media and being objective and unbiased. And without getting into fake news, which I really kind of don't touch, I point out that 62% of us today get our traditional news through social media. So the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or, you know, even the, you know, Louisiana Picayune are all publishing their traditional fourth estate type news articles on social media and they're being, um, Retweeted, so that kind of blows a hole in the idea of the degree of tr- credibility, and and that leads to my third, which is that social media is is opinion based and not informative. And there, I kind of flip it to say, well, the me- the the newspaper articles that courts relied on, and the um, I mean, the courts rejected, and the broadcast medium the court rejected when telling uh, when when granting changes of venue were based on bias 
an opinion that appeared in court. So, I mean, that appeared in these cases. So in many of those cases, it was the op-eds that were, that was the information that allowed for change of venue. Mm, mm. So it was actually the opinion writing that was driving the prejudice more than the reportage. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We know one thing that struck me is that makes it a little odd that courts are less receptive to social media evidence in this context is just that, that in a lot of ways, it's just more evidentiary of the very factors that they're trying to identify. I mean, like, unlike broadcast media, where, you know, you send stuff out and whoever picks it up, picks it up. With social media, you have actual numbers attached to the different kinds of information that's being distributed. And you can tabulate, like, how many people have seen this? How many people have talked about it? Like, what's the actual penetration of this particular information in a really concrete and sort of um, uh, sort of data rich way that was not possible previously. So it seems it seems doubly odd under those circumstances. So that's the crazy thing. And there was a civil case that dealt with Comic Con in San Diego, um, and they wanted a change of venue there, and they cited. That there, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they said like there's something like twenty thousand tweets about this Comic Con issue, and the court said it didn't, it, they they didn't care, it didn't count, and I just wonder, with all due respect to our judges, if it's a generational thing, I being of the generation of judges, <laughs> that they just don't understand social media. I I just I don't. Um, I don't know why, because I agree with you. You, you could, and, and, and in the Zarnev case too, they were able to tabulate like something like there were 20,000 retweets or something. Um, and the court said, we don't care because what does a retweet mean? Mm. But I think mm. the thing to keep in mind in all of that is it's not a numbers game with respect to reading prejudice articles. It's a numbers game with respect to being able to read those and have an inability to set aside um, your preconceived notions and be able to be fair. So in other words, if you can show that I, Leslie Tenzer, juror, had read and liked 8,000 Facebook page, you know, Facebook posts and Twitter posts that were basically condemning, you know, Dokar Zarnev, but I get in and I swear to tell the truth and say, look, I did read these, but I, I'm also willing to hear what the defense has to say. I may be impaneled. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One, it, it's, it seems especially strange to not take social media more seriously in that context as well, because it seems at least from my anecdotal perspective, I mean, the level of vitriol on social media far exceeds what I would ever expect to see in any other medium presented by, you know, someone holding themselves out as a journalist rather than a private person speaking. So it seems like in some respects it ought to be more troubling. I agree. And and, and where it's most troubling to me is in those small towns where there is the immemorial Facebook post. So you'd have, there was, there was one of the cases I read was in a small little community in Lackawanna County in, in, in Pennsylvania. Now, Facebook 
in particular is built on community. You know, you 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 have to friend someone, and your friends are friends. And so when this whole community is reading about this murder, whether it's reposting, you know, negative news articles or, you know, saying I knew this guy in fifth grade and he was a bad guy then, you know, that comes from the emotion. And and if you go back to the earliest cases pre-social media, then you see that the cases in which the court granted change of venue was when the articles were biased and grabbed at your emotion. I see them as, as parallel. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting because I was thinking about the geographic aspect when I was reading your paper as well. And I, I think that's true that Facebook seems much more kind of geographically laden in terms of the distribution of information, whereas sites like Twitter or Instagram are much more kind of national or even international in terms of the sort of audience that people are reaching. And I wonder if courts should take the kind of the the technology of the platform or the nature of the platform into account as well in thinking about how to evaluate evidence from that platform for a risk of prejudice. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that the um, that could go into a totality of the circumstances test, which is the ability of a platform to persuade I wrote an article a while ago called The Death of Slander. And in that article, I basically suggest that we don't need slander anymore because Twitter, which is written, is really kind of like slander in that it's off the cuff, not reflective. And so it really, those kind of tweets need to be treated more like spoken word than written word. And I think that you're suggesting the same thing here, which is that each platform comes with its own kind of reflection, its own kind of connection, and its own ability to persuade. And and I wondered as well about something you said earlier about sort of the dialectic of like media and gossip. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder whether subconsciously some courts don't think – of social media expression as being closer to gossip and are like maybe not not taking it as seriously as they otherwise would because of that kind of historical distinction um and and kind of mistakenly failing to recognize the extent to which the technology has made the kind of gossip that circulates on social media so much more uh have such a much broader kind of reach and impact. That's a brilliant point. I mean, that's a really brilliant point and one that I don't, I have to be honest, I don't think I fully developed it. But as you bring that out, um, the idea is that the genesis of pretrial publicity was always kind of these revered mediums. And I was basically suggesting that we should revere social media in the way we revere television and Radio, because television and radio both have the ability to be um, biased. But I think that your point may be the one from which the judges are coming at this, which is that social media is not anything like television or um, radio, even at its most degenerative form, and that it's really just kind of chatter among persons through you know, technology. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, Leslie, in, in closing, you know, now that for better or for worse, we have our first true social media president. Um, do you think that that will make judges think more carefully about how they think of the impact of social media in terms of public perception and the risk of bias? Well, I will give you my apolitical answer as opposed to my political answer. And I will say that I've been writing about social media for about 10 years now. And um, I've noticed two things. The first thing is that our current laws really can serve as vessels to uh, deal with social media. So for instance, in this particular case, the totality of circumstances test certainly can be applied to social media. But the other thing that I've noticed is that there is a huge lag time between the introduction of social media and the court's willingness to acknowledge it. So even though we have our first kind of president who communicates through Twitter, I don't know that courts, particularly the lowest courts, the trial courts, are willing to shift their attitude towards social media as a consequence. I certainly think they should. And I don't say that from, from having a, a, a political bent toward or against our particular president, but I think that, you know, our president has done an end run around the traditional reporting by getting his word out through Twitter, through Twitter. And if that doesn't give Twitter some street cred, I don't know what does. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about your paper. Brian, thank you for asking me. I've really, I've learned from you too. I look forward to incorporating some of our thoughts into um, the next uh, iteration of this. So thank you. Something awful happened. I'm locked in the vault at the bank, you see. Did you pick up our Holland bulbs? I didn't have a chance, you see. Johnny, you know perfectly well we've got to get those bulbs planted now if we're going to have tulips next spring. But Penny, I'm locked in the vault. Johnny, you get those bulbs today.